This week on the Backtable Podcast. I really think it comes down to the goals of therapy. You know, uh, predominantly the goal for therapy has been a reduction in short-term mortality. So we've been trying to identify who's at high risk of dying and can we intervene in that subgroup. However, I think as we learn more about PE, we're having additional considerations that we have to account for. So, for instance, um, there is the acuity of PE, someone who may not have a high chance of dying but may end up in the ICU for several days, may end up taking weeks to recover. If we can reduce that person's short-term acuity by allowing them to de-escalate, allow them to be discharged from the hospital faster, recover faster, that could also be a goal for therapy. Welcome to the Backtable Podcast, which is committed to all things IR and endovascular. This is Michael Barraza returning as your host. I'd like to thank our listeners for tuning in and encourage you to subscribe to the podcast on whatever platform you use to listen, or leave us a review on iTunes. We always appreciate your feedback. Uh, Before we dive into our topic for discussion, I'd first like to thank today's sponsor, Inari Medical. Inari Medical's mission is to treat and transform the lives of patients suffering from venous diseases with purpose-built solutions for removing large blood clots from the venous anatomy without the need for thrombolytic drugs. The Inari Flow Retriever is the first mechanical thrombectomy system indicated for the treatment of pulmonary embolism. Find out more information at inarimedical.com. Today, we're talking about endovascular treatment options for pulmonary embolism, or PE. Joining me today are Dr. Tom Tu, an interventional cardiologist, and Dr. Vinket Tamala, an interventional radiologist. Thank you both so much for doing this. How are you guys doing? Great. Thanks for having us, Michael. Thanks, Michael. You're doing great. Uh, uh, before we start, um, I just thought maybe uh, I'd have the two of you tell us, you know, you know, where you are, what you're doing, and uh, and then we'll go from there. Uh, start with you, Tom. Sure. Um, I am an interventional cardiologist by training. I have been in practice in Louisville, Kentucky for over 16 years. Uh, started treating pulmonary embolism with uh, a lot of interest and regularity about five years ago. And because of my work with the initial uh, product of Inari Medical, I've actually taken a full-time job as chief medical officer of Inari Medical at this time. Right on. Uh, Yeah, actually, um, I heard from somebody recently who heard you speak, and he he shared an interesting story about how how you started doing this in your first case. Would you mind sharing that? Sure. Um, You know, uh, education of uh, cardiologists in the field of venous thromboembolism was quite lacking in my medical training. Uh, All I knew from medical school and residency uh, was pulmonary embolism was bad and that you treat it with anticoagulation and you hope for the best. And uh, as a practicing cardiologist, I was asked to treat a patient with pulmonary embolism who had failed systemic thrombolysis. This was about two years into my uh, practice, and the chief of the intensive care unit asked me to help this uh, 30-year-old healthcare worker who was dying of a massive PE due to uh, uh, ruptured appendicitis. And they had given systemic thrombolytics. The patient did not reperfuse. They were hypoxic and uh, in shock. And uh, really, I had to make things up as I went along. Uh, I ended up doing things like... Uh, thrombectomy with uh, angiojet, which we had at that time, 
uh, swirling pigtail catheters in the pulmonary arteries. And uh, surprisingly, uh, this patient survived. And that, that really inspired me to do better for our patients with this disease state. Now, Venkat, uh, also would like you, you know, to tell us where you are and what you're doing. I mean, it, from what I've gathered on, on following you on Twitter, T in the lead coat, uh, you're doing just about everything. Did you just start doing this you know, from day one? Yeah, I, I'm, I'm an interventional radiologist by, uh, by training. Uh, this is my first job out of fellowship. I've been in practice for uh, nine years. Um, very fortunate to be a, a part of a, a high-end IR practice. You know, we, we, we cover five hospitals in the county. The way I got involved with Inari um, goes back a, a couple of years. Um, you know, I, I came from the same um, thought process of thrombolysis first back in the day in fellowship, you know, and, and kept on doing the same. Um, couple of um, couple of cases in, in, in a short period of time um, ended up having uh, intracranial bleed from, you know, from CDT. And fairly young patients, one of them was, you know, 36-year-old, you know, young female with two kids, my mother. Um, that got us thinking a bit, um, you know, if uh, something that we don't have control on, especially the side effect from a TPA. Um, and and the moment, you know, Inari in came out, yeah, we we tried a bit with Penumbra for massive and submassive uh, PEs. Wasn't really satisfying as far as you know the clot hall so you know tried tried dinari you know got got our feet wet um there's definitely a learning curve but um but so far we we've probably done 60 cases of inari um successfully all right right on um yeah you know me personally i'm in uh nashville and um i didn't do much p work in training but it's something that you know, at, at, I cover like eight different hospitals and some of them we do it. Some of them, um, interventional cardiology does it and some it's vascular surgery. So it's been a, you know, unique mix, but, um, you know, we're still doing, uh, primarily, you know, catheter directed thrombolysis, but we have recently gotten, um, the flow tree approved. So I'm looking forward to, uh, giving that a go. Um, let's talk first about, you know, why and when, um, you know, I'm, I'm curious to see, you know, what are, your personal indications for um, treating these patients endovascularly, you know, it doesn't have to be necessarily, you know, strict criteria, but, but what are you guys recommending or, or treating these patients? Um, I'll start. Um, so I think uh, most of the listeners are familiar with the standard risk stratification for pulmonary embolism, right. sorting out patients between massive intermediate risk or submassive, and then low-risk patients. A lot of that has to do with presence or absence of RV strain, as well as biomarker positivity, and then presence or absence of cardiogenic shock. Uh, I think that that framework is commonly used, and I think it's useful in identifying very grossly who's at short-term risk of mortality from PE. Um, I think it's got a lot of shortcomings, though. I mean, the whole concept of risk stratification is designed to draw some kind of line uh, over which you say the risk of the disease is higher than the risk of the therapy, and below which you say, well, maybe it's safer to treat conservatively because the risk of the therapy is too high. And those lines are drawn 
but mostly based on systemic thrombolysis, which is, you know, up until recently, the only uh, approved therapy for pulmonary embolism. And I think as we get safer and safer therapies, more effective therapies, we're going to see these risk stratification change uh, according to um, kind of a newer and safer way of doing things, very similar to how the treatment of myocardial infarction and stroke is evolving. Sure. Yeah. Um, and I'm with you. It, it, it sometimes seems like some of the, the, the lines are, are blurred and, and there are certain things that, you know, come in that are outside of the risk stratification, uh, you know, especially, you know, post-operative patients. Um, uh, so what about you, Vincat? When are you treating these patients? Um, you know, I should say from, from the hospital setting, we have, um, we, we got a robust machine as far as, uh, referrals for PE. Um, as a, as a matter of fact, um, IR was, was involved with, with ER, um, physicians from the get go, uh, pulmonary critical care doctors where we end up getting a call from the ER physician right off the bat, even before an ICU consult happens. Um, okay. and, and some of our diagnostic partners, um, they do a pretty good job about sort of giving them a, a direction, you know, they, you know, part of the reporting process for us involves the RV LV, you know, ratio and the location of the clot. And I think that kind of guides the ER, you know, together with the, with the clinical picture, um, they, they give us a call first and, and then, you know, our paradigm is, is it massive or submassive? And if, if massive, um, you know, it, it's emergent, we, you know, we take the patient straight away to the lab. If it's submassive, um, I'm, I'm with Tom. I mean, the literature is all over the place, but we do want to risk stratify it uh, based on you know, bio, troponins and, and you know, biomarkers, BNP. If they are positive and CT has a significant right heart strain, um, then we are more likely to intervene. Um, and whether it's going to be thrombolysis or thrombectomy, and I, you know, the more of more we are doing thrombectomy and 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 the results we are seeing on the table with you know, significant drop in physiological pressures and and you know clot reduction, um, the paradigm shift is happening if it's not already towards thrombectomy in in these subset of patients. I really think it comes down to the goals of therapy. You know, uh, predominantly the goal for therapy has been a reduction in short-term mortality. So we've been trying to identify who's at high risk of dying and can we intervene in that subgroup. However, I think as we learn more about PE, we're having additional considerations that we have to account for. So, for instance, um, there is the acuity of PE, someone who may not have a high chance of dying but may end up in the ICU for several days, may end up taking weeks to recover. If we can reduce that person's short-term acuity by allowing them to de-escalate, allow them to be discharged from the hospital faster, recover faster, that could also be a goal for therapy. And then there's also the long-term considerations of somebody who has a large clot burden. We know that that all doesn't lice uh, completely, either with endogenous fibrinolysis or exogenous therapies. Um, 
what happens to that clot over time is that it becomes collagen-laden, it transforms to elastin, it develops its own blood supply, it starts secreting hormones, and the way the body deals with chronic thrombus is to incorporate it into the wall of the pulmonary artery as opposed to this hope that it just lyses completely. And if that's a process that leads to CTEF or some smaller form of that like CTED, I think hopefully we can uh, reduce that incidence as well with more aggressive therapy. Now, we have to gather data and prove that, but that would be the hope. Uh, right on, Tom. Um, the, if you look at the clot that's, that's retrieved, right, I mean, in, in my experience, majority of them look organized thrombus, look like an organized thrombus. And, and it, it amazes me, you know, we, we do TPA, and which we know in, in, you know, in clots predominantly that are organized, TPA may not work. But when, when a patient presents to the ER with an acute PE, the DVT that probably provoked the PE is, is probably an organized thrombus you know, more, more often than not. And, and the more, the more we are, we're doing this and the more clot um, we retrieve and, and evaluate it, I mean, it's, it's shocking to see those long threads of organized thrombus. And I, I, I started believing in, um, you know, in the efficacy of the treatment once, you know, a, a direct feedback from the patients on the table sometimes. You know, I can breathe a whole lot better. Uh, I haven't breathed like this in 20 years. Um, th those sort of things. And, and supporting evidence with uh, uh, you know, arterial pressures and, and subsequent follow-up, you know, echocardiogram to see the resolution of the right heart strain. Um, you know, it, this, this seems very promising. So let's get into, for a second, you know, the endovascular treatment options for PE. I mean, we've got uh, catheter-directed thrombolysis, we've got ECOs, we've got thrombectomy, and then, of course, we've got, you know, open options like surgical embolectomy. Um, what do you think is, you know, the role for TPA now, I mean, either systemically or, you know, with a catheter, and when you've got all of these options available? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, there's um, so many different ways that we can treat pulmonary embolism, and this is a interventional-based uh, media, so I assume that your listeners are focused on catheter-directed therapies. But I think it's important to take a step back and recognize that over 90% of significant PEs, so intermediate or high-risk PEs, are still treated just with anticoagulation and transition to oral Therapies. So I think there's a long way to go just in um, offering advanced therapies to patients who are currently being treated uh, just with anticoagulation. Uh, when we get into catheter-based therapies or more advanced therapies, I think uh, the way you broke it down is, is uh, quite helpful. You have the lytic-based therapies, whether that's systemic or catheter-directed, and then you have the non-lytic-based therapies, which I would say mechanical thrombectomy with Flowtriever is a major component of that, as well as surgery. And it really comes down to, I think, uh, how quickly you need to um, <clears throat> remove the clot and uh, restore uh, uh, RV function, uh, how effectively you think lytics are going to work versus mechanical thrombectomy, and then what uh, risk you want to expose the patient to. And for me, I think, uh, you know, having treated hundreds of patients in my career with catheter-directed lytics, you know, I've been burned once or twice. It's not a very common event, but certainly those events stick with you, especially if you were giving catheter-directed lysis for something that wasn't a very mortal disease. Um, 
you know, you, you, you remember every time that you've inadvertently given somebody a, a intracranial hemorrhage. And so if you look at the evolution of treatment for myocardial infarction and stroke, where there was an initial interest in lytics and then that kind of faded once we had more effective uh, non-lytic-based catheter therapies, I think you'll see uh, PE move in that same direction. Undoubtedly massive PE, we all agree, right? Patient gets a, a, a bolus of systemic TPA, weight-based. But more and more, you know, we, we are doing thrombectomy for clot reduction in spite of patient on, you know, a full-dose TPA on board. Um, okay. and, and, the, and the reason, very simple, just like, just like in stroke therapies, although you can't really, you know, we're comparing apples to oranges here, but it's like a large vessel occlusion. And the TPA may or may not effectively decrease the clot burden. So we, we are supplementing that in massive patients um, with, with thrombectomy, and, and the results are promising so far. Surgical embolectomy, I have yet to see one. In, in my nine years uh, of practice, I haven't had a CTs, CT surgery consulted for a surgical embolectomy. Um, and and uh, you know, when, we, when we move on to the submassive population, uh, to, to what um, Tom was saying, as far as you know, CDT, um, versus uh, mechanical thrombectomy, you know, I I do favor mechanical thrombectomy with the risk of avoiding avoiding the risk of intracranial hemorrhage that goes with CDT. And like Tom, I have been burned you know a couple of times too. Um, on the other hand, the clot location helps me decide in ways uh, which ones I want to be aggressive with thrombectomy versus CDT. Um, you know, I, the less central, the large, um, huge clot burden favor mechanical versus something very segmental or subsegmental PE with the right indication to treat, then that might be something I would consider CDT. Yeah, I would uh, second that completely. Um, first point is that uh, surgical thrombectomy for pulmonary embolism is a very good surgery. You know, it's not very complicated. It is quite successful in removing large clots, especially big saddle pulmonary emboli. Uh, there's two big problems with it, however. One is it's hard to find surgeons who are very enthusiastic about it. In fact, the opposite is true. Once you have a good catheter-based therapy, the surgeons are more than happy to let the catheter uh, physicians treat this disease state. I think one is a reluctance to expose these patients to the risks of major uh, chest surgery and cardiopulmonary bypass. And I think the second is, you know, we live in a world now with public reporting, surgical outcomes are very scrutinized. And so surgeons are quite concerned about the possibility of taking these patients who have uh, very, very uh, sick right ventricles and expose them to the risk of a major chest operation. So I do know there are some surgeons who do an excellent job with this, uh, but I think there are quite few. Uh, the second point that uh, Venkat made I want to reiterate, which is I really think right now the technology is focused on large central clot burdens. So uh, speaking of uh, Inari flow retriever specifically, I think it's very effective for main PA, right and left main PA, interlobar arteries, and maybe out to the basal trunk. I think that's really where we see the best effect uh, and uh, the best technical success. 
If the clot is beyond that in the segments, in the subsegmental areas, and you still feel that it's important to treat, I think catheter-directed thrombolysis uh, is very reasonable in, in those cases. As I said, you know, I'm not currently using the flow retriever, but we recently got it approved. So for me, it would be really helpful to have you guys, uh, you know, walk me through the equipment in a case. Uh, and one thing I want to start with is, is when you're doing these, are you doing these under you know, moderate sedation or anesthesia? Uh, I'll tackle the first. Um, so uh, the uh, pre-procedure assessment of a patient getting a percutaneous thrombectomy, I think, is critical. Uh, it's important to understand what their respiratory and cardiovascular status is so you know uh, the risks that uh, this patient might need additional support, such as intubation or pressors or some assistance from cardiology or surgery with uh, uh, mechanical circulatory support. So being aware of that upfront and getting the team ready is critical understanding their anticoagulation or thrombolysis status so you know what the risk of bleeding, uh, particularly with wire perforation, uh, as we do do uh, some kind of uh, wire manipulation in the pulmonary arteries, so it's important to understand the risks. And I think the physiology of a patient undergoing uh, a pulmonary embolism is that they have acute RV strain, and the RV is something that is not used to doing a lot of extra work. It can fail unexpectedly. You're very preload dependent and your adrenaline state is high. And so routine uh, administration of general anesthesia in intubation is actually not recommended. Uh, in this okay. patient population, you can immediately... Uh, crash and get hypotensive if you give these patients propofol, if you give them high-dose fentanyl, uh, typical drugs that an anesthesiologist might give for induction of anesthesia. And so uh, we try to avoid general anesthesia and intubation if at all possible. Now, that being said, there are patients with pulmonary embolism who have to be intubated for uh, respiratory support. And if we know that's the case, uh, we're very aggressive about supporting with uh, pressors. You know, we might bolus with epinephrine as we're inducing anesthesia. We have all the teams on standby ready to go on ECMO if necessary, because every now and then you'll have a patient that just completely crashes as soon as you give a little bit of, uh, of fentanyl or, or propofol. So, you know, let's let's take a hypothetical patient and... Uh, you know, say you've made the decision to treat the patient with thrombectomy, um, you know, the patient is prepped and ready to go. Uh, you know, I don't know which order you want to do this, but, you know, one thing I was hoping you could do is cover the, the different components of the flow retriever set and then explain to me how you do the case. Sure, yeah, thank you. I'll, I'll have you go through that and then I'll add in if, if necessary. Sounds good, Tom. One, one thing I would want to reiterate. Please. Um, you know, being an IR and not knowing how to read EKGs, you know, I'm getting not at least the, the minor details in an EKG. One thing to pay attention, which has, which has not been infrequent, is to look for a bundle branch block. Okay. If oh, patients, yes. If patients have a new onset left bundle branch block, um, you know, then there are times when either we had a temporary pacer, you know, as placed by cardiology before we do thrombectomy. Um, an attention that I would help when when you're thinking of doing mechanical thrombectomy with a with a 20 or 24 French device, you don't want to end up in a complete heart block. So one one, one key thing I, I these days I I, I look into before um, before doing the case. As far the as the first um, case I ever did had a bundle branch block. I'm, I'm glad you reminded me. 
that's got to be stressful. <laughs> um, yeah, let me uh, jump in here as the cardiologist on the line, uh, just to explain the physiology <laughs> in more detail. So um, there's, of course, two bundles of electrical wiring connecting the atrium and the ventricle, the left and the right bundle. And if someone has a pre-existing left bundle branch block, that means their entire conduction system from atrium to ventricle is reliant on the right bundle. And the right bundle is um, travels just underneath the septum. Uh, on the right side. So any catheters that are directed through the right ventricle that kind of bonk into the, the septum and can induce heart block uh, will then result in complete heart block and asystole. So the pre-existing left bundle branch block without uh, a, a pacemaker in place could be a danger in performing right heart manipulation. So uh, I would recommend that you uh, put a temporary pacemaker in before proceeding with the procedure. Yeah, I'm, I'm not a cardiologist, but complete heart block sounds bad. Um, <laughs> so yeah, it, it, it go really, ahead, uh, makes, so, makes you sweat a little. <laughs> so, um, so say once we decide, um, I, I, I'm 100% um, in support of what Tom said earlier in, in regards to sedation. Um, we almost exclusively do them under conscious sedation with the occasional exception of somebody who needs intubation for you know, oxygenation. Um, femoral approach primarily. If I'm if I'm pursuing flow retriever, um, the right common femoral vein, um, being right-handed is is the access site. I typically start off with a six French sheath in, in the right common femoral vein. I get into the pulmonary artery using a pigtail, pigtail catheter, and a good old technique of the back end of a Benson bent. In a, in a curve, like a C-shaped curve. Mm-hmm. And the Benson wire never leaves the catheter, but I use the Benson to manipulate the pigtail through the right ventricle into the pulmonary artery. And I think that portion of having a pigtail while crossing the right ventricle is paramount when you are using a flow retriever device um, for the very simple reason that you don't want to be coursing between the cardae tendinae in the right ventricle. Okay. You, you do want to avoid them. So once I get up there, do you know, I don't really do a um, power injection since I have a CTA most sure. of the time. And and I, I just do get a pressure, uh, a pulmonary arterial pressure as baseline. Then I do a hand injection to see where I am in the scheme of things. Um, on a side note, very rarely you could find yourself in the left atrium through a patent for I'm in Ovali or an ASD. So I like to make sure there are no air bubbles and just confirm interluminal location within the main pulmonary artery. Then I switch out to a either a Cobra or a, um, uh, a Compi, 100 centimeter long catheter. Try to get segmental with the catheter, preferentially the lower lobe um, segmental arteries. Then we use a one centimeter short, floppy, super stiff amplats so that, you know, it's just a centimeter long floppy tip to avoid perforation in the lungs and, and subsequent hemoptysis and whatnot. Once we have the amplats uh, in place, then um, we use a 22 French gore dry seal sheath in the groin if you're going with a T20, T20 device. But if you're using mm-hmm. a T24 device, you will need a 24 French go dry seal sheet. 
once we have the sheath, which is about 33 centimeter long, it, it's in the intrahepatic IVC, then we track the flow retriever device, you know, by itself, T20. If it's a sharp angulation in the pulmonary arteries, you could use a, a 16, T16 inside a T20 to track the T20 into the okay. necessary location being the main pulmonary artery. Then we do aspirations. Sometimes, um, you know, all it takes is two or three good aspirations. And then cross over to the left lung, do the same over there. Occasionally, you may have to um, take the device out. If it's a long piece of clot, it can get trapped in the T20 device. Then you maintain your wire axis. You deflate the um, the valve in the go-dry seal and take the T20 device out, retrieve the clot, and then reassess the situation. Then we do a repeat pulmonary artery pressure, um, post-thrombectomy, and then an, a, a you know, power injection to for completion's sake to evaluate all the lobar arteries or their patency and whatnot. Uh, Venkat, that's an excellent uh, summary of the procedure. I just want to underline a few of the points that you made because I think they're critical uh, for new users. Uh, first of all, the Inari Flowtriever system is really a toolkit of multiple different tools that you can choose any or uh, all of the combinations of the devices to use. Uh, it is billed as a one price per procedure. So feel free to use as many of the tools as you feel necessary to accomplish what you want to uh, uh, do. Uh, we have the aspiration catheters. And as you mentioned, Venkat, the primary aspiration catheters include the Trever 20 as well as the 24. They're very similar catheters. They have the same length. Uh, the only difference is in the diameter of the catheter. Obviously, the 24 being 24 French, uh, it's larger, and therefore you get a lot more aspirational flow. Uh, the trade-off is you have to put a 24 French dry seal sheath in the groin as opposed to a 22. Um, I would mention that about 10% of our uh, users use the internal jugular approach, which is uh, quite acceptable as well. Uh, so there might be reasons why you might prefer the neck, although there's some minor technical differences uh, if you choose to go that way. Uh, in terms of the phases of uh, the procedure, um, you know, uh, access is one. We really urge you to use ultrasound guided access so that you don't inadvertently puncture the artery into vein and therefore create an AV fistula. Uh, passing through the right heart, I think you did an excellent description of how to do so uh, using a pigtail technique. Uh, we urge you not to straighten the pigtail, especially with a glide wire, because you could get under a cord. And, you know, many people do so putting smaller catheters in the lung without realizing it. And you can get away with it with a six or eight French system, but with a 20 French system, you will not get away with it. And so it's really important to, uh, to pass through a, uh, the, the right heart safely. An alternative technique would be to use a balloon-tipped catheter. Uh, many cardiologists are familiar with pulmonary capillary wedge catheters, and a balloon-tipped swan uh, is, is very effective as well. And so that would be a second uh, option for you in that regard. And then taking a pulmonary angiogram, doing the aspiration. I would mention that uh, aspiration alone 
uh, to uh, remove the clot is often effective in about 70% of cases. So most people find that aspiration alone is all that's necessary to achieve the thrombectomy they're looking for. In the 30% of cases where the clot is wall adherent, then we have the family of Trever discs. These are nitinol discs that are constrained within a catheter, very similar to the Amplatz family of, of uh, nitinol devices. And the idea is you pass this catheter through the clot, you expose a nitinol disc uh, beyond the, uh, the clot, and then uh, withdraw this system back into the Trever catheter. So you disrupt the, the bond between the clot and the wall, making that clot susceptible for aspiration. So in about 30% of cases, we find that the Trever discs uh, are used and are effective in that regard. And then lastly is the hemostasis, which, uh, you know, there's several techniques, all of which seem to work well, including using a uh, figure of eight or per close uh, or, or per string stitch, uh, using uh, a uh, per-close or pre-close system, uh, or just manual compression. So any of those uh, seem to be very effective in hemostasis, and we don't see a lot of vascular complications. Uh, one of the questions I had is about the, the aspiration. Uh, because I haven't used this device yet, uh, how are you doing the aspiration? I mean, is this you know, with a catheter? Sure. I mean, uh, with a, like a syringe? Uh, I'll take that uh, because that's really one of the great advances of this system. You know, the first Flowtriever system uh, that I used five years ago uh, was primarily disc-focused, and aspiration was really uh, more of a secondary function of the device and, and wasn't really optimized. Uh, one of the realizations that I had in using the device was that we could greatly improve the aspirational efficiency of the system, and I think we saw a dramatic increase in the e efficacy of thrombectomy. So if you look at the FLARE study, which is the IDE study that we did to get FDA approval for this device, uh, we actually did not have any of the advanced thrombectomy uh, systems that that we've now gone uh, gone with, so we have about uh, you know three or four generations of devices since the initial uh, uh, flare study. Uh, the advancements have all been focused on increasing aspirational efficiency of the device. So the tubes are. Uh, very flexible to be able to be passed into the pulmonary artery safely, but they're thin-walled to maximize the lumen, uh, but they're robust enough to withstand a full negative atmosphere of pressure. So we really have quite a bit of uh, suction at the end of the device. And then it's optimized all the way through, not just the catheter itself, but through the stopcocks, through the sidearm tubing. Even the syringes are specially designed to have wide mouths to give uh, no pinch points along the way. And so we see aspirational flow rates of our T24 system as high as about 175 cc's per second. So you can imagine there's a quick blast of, of suction that's applied when we turn the stopcock on. The suction itself is applied through a 60 cc locking syringe. This is something specially made by Inari Medical. We attach it using a quick connect to the back of the catheter and then lock the vacuum into place. And then when we want to activate it, we simply turn a stopcock 90 degrees and all the, the vacuum is applied in an instant. Uh, if you uh, have free flow of blood, you'll see the catheter fill within half a second. That's, that's how quickly okay. the suction occurs. And, and Mike, I got to say, every time you put that cloud on the table... You hear screams, people, wow, <laughs> you know, that's the best part of the day for most of the techs. They love doing Inari stuff because they see all these, you know, long, fancy clots come out. Um, cheers well, them up. in terms of yeah, I, mean, I love seeing the pictures, um, but, you know, that, that brings me another question, you know, about your, your 
technical or procedural endpoint, I mean, do you, when you've gotten most of the clot, I mean, do you find you just, you know, is that one of the things you use to tell you that you're there? Is that you just get tons of blood through the catheter and no more clot? My, I would, I would say, you know, to me, the pressure measurement is, is an important part of decision making. Okay. One, um, the amount of blood loss and, you know, the common thinking would be what 20 or 24 French device, you would be aspirating a ton of blood. And that has not been um, my experience. I, I would say an average 200 to 300 cc's um, of blood loss if we go six to eight aspirates, right? Um, and and the next thing would be the clot burden itself. Um, you know, you do a hand injection intermittently to figure out um, how much how much relief you got. Um, and and finally, um, you, you will see on the hemodynamic parameters they they change rather rapidly on the table. Um, the yeah. hypo, you know, the tachycardia resolving, the blood pressure improving, the oxygen requirements going down, all, all these things. And and you're right. The important thing is to know when to stop. And all, all these these few things go into making a decision on on when to stop. You know, the thrombectomy. Venkat, you make some very good points. I just want to add one more. Um, if you take an angiogram at the start of the procedure and your patient is cooperative enough and not tachypnic enough that, they, um, that you can get a nice DSA picture, you can really look at the blush, uh, the, the blood flow extending all the way to the periphery of the lungs. And frequently you'll, sign, you'll find huge patches of lung that are underperfused. And at the end of the procedure, if you feel that you're getting close to stopping, you take another angiogram and all of those segments are now perfused. I think that's a really good indicator that you've done your job. I think one of okay. the least important indicators is complete angiographic perfection. I think it's unlikely that you're going to achieve that. We do feel like we are getting more thrombus out than we have with any other technique, but I'm not sure that uh, a lot of aspiration in order to get perfect looking pictures is necessary. You know, assuming that there is going to be a little bit of clot left over, when do you uh, allow the, the patient to resume heparin? That's a great point. I actually don't interrupt the heparin at all. So uh, these patients okay. are on anticoagulation as soon as they're diagnosed because we know early okay. administration sure. and achieving therapeutic PTTs is critical in this disease state. I continue it before, during, and after the procedure. So these patients are on IV heparin continuously through the procedure. I oftentimes will give a bolus of heparin to achieve an ACT of around 250 seconds. That's to prevent uh, clot forming in these venous catheters. Mm -hmm. And then uh, because it's just the vein, you can get really good hemostasis without having to worry about reversing the anticoagulation sure. or holding heparin. So I use, I personally like the uh, figure of eight stitch. So I use that and um, they stay on IV heparin overnight. Um, after the procedure, uh, if I feel that they're de-escalated enough that they're in a much better shape, I will oftentimes start them on oral anticoagulation the next day and stop the IV heparin, uh, expediting their you know throughput through the hospital. And oftentimes, uh, one side benefit of good thrombectomy is that these patients de-escalate to the point where they don't need to be in the ICU. So frequently, these patients start off a little sick, people are, are wary, but they get better on the table so they can go to the regular floor afterwards. I modified a, a bit, uh, Tom. Uh, for the most part, I, I, I agree with you. Um, we, we do bolus them on the table, uh, 70 milligram per kilo. 
to get them therapeutic while doing the thrombectomy. And after the per-close suture or even a per-string suture, um, I, I give it a two-hour break. I, I, I give two hours off, and then we start a you know IV heparin without a bolus, um, keeping them anticoagulated in two hours. And I think there's a there's a time a time frame time between the heparin bolus administration and restarting the heparin is usually about a couple of hours. And I I think the bolus helps to cover that that two hours. But if it's longer, then then I may start heparin sooner. But in general, we we give them a two hour break um, before restarting it. I do want to talk a little bit more about the technical aspects of the procedure because I think. As a procedural-based specialty, uh, your audience uh, might want to hear some of the other techniques and and lessons we've learned over 4,000 case experience. Uh, So we did talk about um, the access. We talked about crossing through the right heart. Um, I do want to mention that uh, all of our systems are over the wire, so you need long wires. Uh, Whatever uh, support wire you choose to do this over uh, should be at least 260 or 300 centimeters. Um, I found that navigating through uh, the pulmonary arteries is safest with a spring coil-tipped wire as opposed to a hydrophilic polymer-tipped wire. So I I might use something like SuperCore or Magic Torque or something like that. The disadvantage of that system is that they oftentimes have longer uh, soft tips. So you won't get support anywhere near the distal five or seven centimeters of the wire. So if you're really trying to get distal support, you'll have to knuckle the wire and place the stiffer part distally. Or like Venkat suggested, a change out for an Amplat super stiff one centimeter tip, which is an excellent uh, wire for support. Just not one that I would advance without having prior uh, placed a, pro- a catheter in the right place prior. Uh, so I exchange for that wire. I don't advance it on its own. And then as you advance the catheter through the right heart, going through the right atrium, right ventricle, tricuspid valves, and and, and uh, make the bend into the right or left main pulmonary artery, there is a little bit of active wire manipulation to either withdraw or relax the wire to get the tip pointed in the right direction. And in very dilated right hearts, as Venkat mentioned, but I'll underline, um, if you're having difficulty, you can use a transitional catheter uh, such as our Trever 16, which is a 16 French system that takes the curve nicely and then you can telescope uh, your catheter into place. The ideal placement of the Trever aspiration catheter is right at the proximal edge of the clot. Uh, I recommend that you start aspirating proximally first. That reduces the chance that you're going to push the clot further into the lungs and and perhaps uh, cause it to become occlusive. And then if you can aspirate right on the proximal edge, I think you'll have the best luck. If there's a long saddle, uh, oftentimes because the saddle of the pulmonary arteries is quite a large structure and it might be hard to get close enough, uh, that would be the one exception where I actually will try to pull the clot out uh, from the distal end and pull it out backwards. And usually you can snare it around the area of the bifurcation of the truncus anterior and the interlobar artery on the right or around the interlobar artery basal trunk on the left. Those are common locations to grab the clot successfully. The upper lobar arteries can be challenging, at least in the beginning, to you know to get up there and do a thrombectomy. You may have to add an additional wire to provide stability to the device to track up to the upper lobes. But even when you're starting out, I would suggest that you know stay central, stay in the lower lobes. That's probably where you would have successful outcomes. 
Just to add to what Venkat said, uh, the truncus anterior on the right is a common place for a clot to reside. Uh, you don't always have to go into the truncus to remove the clot because oftentimes the clot will just naturally come out of the truncus when you grab it in the interlower artery. But if you have to get it out of the truncus, uh, one thing you can do is simply just withdraw the Trever catheter from the interlobar artery on the right. And as it gradually starts to point upward, even with the wire in the inferior lobe, you can uh, uh, aspirate the clot that way. If you feel that that's not successful and you have to then uh, insert the Trever catheter into the truncus itself, uh, I would recommend a buddy catheter in which you leave a wire in the inferior lobe for stability, as Vincat mentioned, and then you take an angled catheter and direct it up into the truncus and, and get your access that way. Well, if there's, uh, there's nothing else that you guys uh, would like to cover, I just want to thank you both for joining me on the podcast and, and diving into this with me. Uh, you know, This is uh, an exciting topic and an exciting piece of equipment that I'm looking forward to using. Uh, and of course, I want to thank our sponsor, Inari Medical, uh, the Inari Flow Retriever is the first mechanical thrombectomy system indicated for the treatment of PE. Again, would encourage you to, to go to inarimedical.com for more information. Uh, and thanks again for everybody for joining us. Thank you very thanks, much, Mike. Mike.